John chapter 9, verses 8 through 34. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? So they put him out. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a rich dialogue we have before us this morning pray that we would learn 
what it means to bear consistent witness for you. How to glorify you in the testimony that we share with a lost and dying world. May the example of this man who was born blind and given sight by this miracle performed through your son Jesus. May his life and example challenge us, perhaps rebuke us for wasted opportunities that we have had to bear witness to your glory. Also, Lord, encourage us to press forward in sharing the glorious truth that you have revealed to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, verses 16 and following what we had read this morning, what to expect from the world as they conducted their ministry. They must recognize that conflict would be basic to their mission. They must be prepared for the hatred of the world. So before sending the twelve out on this short term mission trip, Jesus gives them a warning. And I want to just read a couple snippets from what was read already this morning. He tells them, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Excuse me, head to verse 25. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they called the head of house, the household Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then verse 32, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. Now, those descriptions that were spoken to the twelve on that day find a direct application in the lives of all those who have been touched by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone who identifies with Jesus Christ will see similar sorts of treatment, as is noted in the text before us this morning. Now, if I were to ask you, who is the first Christian martyr recorded in the Bible, whose name would come to your mind? Good. And everyone would say, Stephen, some people might object that, what about John the Baptist? But remember, John the Baptist is beheaded immediately preceding the public ministry of Christ as it begins in earnest. So perhaps we can call him still a pre-Christian Martyr, But Stephen, and his martyrdom is recorded in Acts chapters 6 and 7. Remember, Stephen had been selected as a sort of prototype deacon. So a lot of people have, take exceptions to that text being utilized to describe deacons. But regardless of whether or not the title is used there, the description of these men fits very well with the description of what deacons would be in the church. But Stephen is one of these men who is selected he, along with a few others, were empowered to help with the daily serving of food. Stephen is described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Then we're told, immediately following that, that Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. 
But some men rose up and argued against Stephen, yet they were unable to withstand the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So what do they do when they can't win an argument? What wicked, sinful men always do. They lie. They claim that Stephen spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stir the crowds up. They drag Stephen away and bring him before the Jewish council. And now here's Stephen presented with an opportunity to bear witness before all of the Jewish council. And presented with that opportunity, oh boy, does he bear witness. Stephen drew a direct correlation between the rebellions of Israel against God in the Old Testament and what Israel was presently doing in rejecting Christ. What he said here is, you're just like your forefathers who rebelled against God years and years before this. He concludes his sermon with the following words in Acts 7, verses 51 through 53. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. It's at that moment that we're told how the people would respond. The people, we're told, were cut to the quick. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes into heaven. And we're told that Stephen, looking up to heaven, sees the glory of God and sees Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. He then announces this. And as soon as he tells the crowd what he is seeing, they respond by crying out with a loud voice, trying to cover up his voice, and covering their ears as they push towards Stephen and drag him out of the city. As soon as they get out of the city, they pick up stones and they begin to stone him. Stephen's last words are, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What an incredible witness. And what a stark proof and fulfillment of the very thing Jesus said would happen with those who followed him. This is exactly the sort of response that should be expected. Now, if I were to ask you the question, who is the first man to receive religious censure or excommunication for his confession of Christ, you'd have to look earlier. You'd have to look before we get to the story of Stephen. You'd have to look here to John chapter 9. For here we have a man who bears strong witness for Christ before those hostile religious leaders. And he's reviled and cast out of the synagogue as a result of his testimony. Remember last week, we noted the marvelous miracle which Jesus performed in healing this man's blindness. Not only was this man blind, but he had had that condition from birth. It was congenital blindness. This fact makes Jesus' healing of this man all the more astonishing. And you can be sure that news like that would travel fast through Jerusalem. There's no way to hide that sort of thing, is there? <laughs> a man who's been blind all of his life and most likely reduced to begging for most of his life, for most of his uh, subsistence, was now granted sight. Remember, this happens while Jesus himself is under tremendous persecution. But meanwhile, Jesus sees this man. He spits in the dirt. He makes him clay. He applies to the man's eyes and tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The man obeys and comes back seeing. Can you imagine what a moment that must have been for this guy? 
it's not just that he had gradually lost his sight over time. He had never seen a thing. He was born blind. Jesus applies some clay to his eyes and says, go wash. He goes and washes, and as he washes the clay off of his eyes, he sees. A man who had been only acquainted with perpetual dark now sees the light of day. I'm sure he could scarce believe his eyes. I assume there was no little amount of rejoicing. I'm sure there was no small disturbance going on there that day. If no one else, this man was shouting. I don't think we have to do a whole lot of eisegesis to get to that point. This guy was pumped. And news travels. And here in John 9, starting in verse 8, we pick up with the dialogue that followed this marvelous healing. We find out right away that this miracle would not be warmly received. You know, a moment that should have elicited such tremendous, unfettered joy for everyone who surrounded this guy. Instead, is met with doubt, suspicion, jealousy, anger, and severe, unwarranted wrong judgments. Yet this man born blind shines for his courageous, consistent witness to what Jesus had done for him. We're going to save the concluding section of this chapter in which Jesus comes to this man and provides him with further revelation regarding himself. We're going to save that for next week. But this text shows us how gracious God is to provide further light to those who humbly receive and respond to what he has already, been, what he has already provided. This man exhibits tremendous faithfulness to bear witness to Christ. And it is most definitely an example worthy of imitation. I'd like to present this morning six keys, six keys for bearing God-glorifying witness. Six keys for bearing God-glorifying witness. A witness that glorifies God. Six keys, and these are all evidenced by this once blind man. First of all, a God-glorifying witness will stick with the truth. A God-glorifying witness will stick with the truth, and he won't get caught up in speculation. He'll stick with the truth and not get caught up in speculation. The basis of what a witness is is that you report what you know. You bear witness to what you know. And we begin this large section of dialogue, first of all, with this man's neighbors. There's a natural progression that's seen through the account. This man is first given opportunity to bear witness to what Jesus had done to him informally first, among neighbors and people who were acquaintances of him, people who knew him. This man's neighbors and those who knew him while he was a blind beggar begin discussing among themselves whether this man is the man who had been born blind. And we're going to see how pressure ramps up against this guy as the text moves along. Some were saying, it's him, it's him. While others were saying, no, 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 it only looks like him. What we're dealing with here is a lookalike. It's not the same guy. Well, this man cannot allow mere speculation to rule the day. He has to speak. He has to tell what had happened. He announces, I am he. I'm the guy. I'm the one who is formerly a blind beggar. So the question is then put to him, so then how were your eyes opened? And the man provides a very straightforward answer. The man, the one being called Jesus, made clay, anointed my eyes, and told me to go and wash in Siloam. So having departed, I washed, and I received sight. When brought before the Pharisees, again, this man is asked, how did he receive sight? And the man says, he placed clay upon my eyes, and I washed, and I see. 
Note that no matter how many times this man is asked regarding this, he bears consistent witness to what had happened to him. There's no embellishment here. There's just the facts. And I really believe there's something, a kernel of truth, that's really important for us to grasp here. This is what it means to testify, to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. There's even a mark of authenticity here because the man says nothing about the fact that Jesus had spit in clay and then had, you know, put it together and then put it on his eyes. Again, this is not something that the man would have been able to see. All he is aware of is that clay was placed upon his eyes. He sticks straightly to the facts. He speaks what he knows and doesn't go any further than that. You see, a God-glorifying witness reports what he or she knows and also will admit what he or she does not know. Has no problem admitting lack of knowledge as well. This man demonstrates tremendous humility. He admits to the general crowd that he does not know where Jesus is when he's asked about it. He responds to the accusation of the Pharisees. They say, this man's a sinner. He goes, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. This man is not claiming omniscience. He's not claiming religious training. Nor is he muddying his testimony with speculations that might not be the case. He sticks to the facts. He says, one thing I do know. Being blind, now I see. It's tremendously freeing to admit you don't know everything. I wonder how many witnesses for Christ have stopped or have shied away from bearing clear testimony because they're scared that they don't know everything. What happens if I'm asked a question that I don't know the answer to? Well, here's what you say. I don't know. That's what you say. You know, there's something freeing about that. Not called to know everything. By the way, no man knows everything. People see right through arrogance and pride, those who have answers to everything. Plus, refraining from speaking on things you do not know actually helps safeguard the testimony that you give regarding what you do know. You start speaking to things that you are not aware of, things that you have not considered, things that you don't know anything about, it will just cast aspersions and suspicions on other areas of your testimony. This is the sad thing about this. If you show yourself to be someone who speaks on issues that you don't know anything about, then when you are shown to be false on those areas, what happens to those areas that you really did know something about and spoke truthfully about? What is people's impression about those areas? Everything you say is now called into suspicion. There's always a danger of speaking beyond our knowledge, and it can actually hurt the rest of our testimony. It is quite appropriate if asked a question that you don't know the answer to, to tell the person, I don't know. By the way, you could follow it up with something like this, but I would love to look into that further. Perhaps we can get together again and look into that matter further. And recognize also that there are some things that God has revealed through special and general revelation that are for us to know and to pass on to the next generation. But there are some things which God has chosen not to reveal and are therefore not for us. Not all of our questions are provided with answers. It's the glory of kings to reveal a matter. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. There are some things that God holds back, maintains their concealment, because he's God. <laughs> and he can choose to do with what he has whatever he wishes. It reminds us of the fact that we are finite, whereas he is infinite. 
You see, a witness is called to testify regarding what he or she knows. So stick to that when you're doing evangelism. Stick to that when you're bearing witness to the glory of God. And for those of you who are timid about evangelism because you don't know all the answers, remember that it would be absurd for a witness to refrain from saying anything just because he doesn't know everything. Since when has a witness been called to the stand in a court of law and said, okay, now do you know everything, first of all? No, okay, get off the stand. We don't want to talk to you. No, bear witness to what you know. That's what we want to hear. You don't need to know everything. But we who are in Christ know something. Maybe better, we know someone. We must tell others what we know and who we know. Secondly, one who bears witness to the glory of God will provide clear and concise answers. Will provide clear and concise answers. Recognizing that there is no prize for long-windedness. There's no prize for long-windedness. There might be occasions in which you have an opportunity to share at a greater length with someone the gospel. But we should also be ready to present the gospel in a shortened format. It shouldn't be something where I need an hour in order to talk to you about the gospel. We should be able to present the gospel in a clear and concise way. See, bearing witness for the glory of God is consumed with this, providing certain irrefutable facts, telling the absolute truth of God. No matter what objections are offered to this man, one thing is irrefutable and undeniable to this man. He will not budge from this truth. One thing he knows, I was blind, now I see. And that cannot be taken away from him. It doesn't matter how many times they try to press him with the issue. He says, it's undeniable, you cannot... Remove this truth from me. I will cling to it. I know this to be the case. Being given sight changed everything for this man. No matter what the crowds of religious leaders might say, no matter how they might press, they could not move him from this conviction. Having this fact firmly placed in his mind and the undeniable fruit of that fact ever present provides this man with a steadfast resolve no matter what anyone else might say. You see, having simple bedrock truths from which we operate is so very important. We all do this. It's just a matter of making those truths things that we continually consider. No matter what others might say to this man, he must interpret all of their statements in light of what Jesus had done for him. An unprecedented miracle had just been performed. A man born blind could now see. And it was done for what reason? So that the works of God might be displayed, as Jesus explained to his disciples, beginning of this text. William Hendrickson says it well. Facts are more stubborn than unsupportable opinions. Facts are more stubborn than unsupportable opinions. How often have people thrown out things where they've rejected truth, but they've had no foundation or basis for that rejection? Don't retreat away from such things. Facts are more stubborn than unsupportable opinions. Truths such as the existence and irreducible complexity of the world that we live in makes an ongoing proclamation to the existence of an intelligent, all-powerful creator. And that's not just something from apologetic textbooks. It comes right out of Romans 1, verse 20. It declares, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You see, the scriptures bear consistent, faithful testimony. They're internally consistent, and they provide knowledge of Jesus Christ, which is seen in precious and magnificent promises. 
which we can trust and believe in because of the consistent record of fulfilled prophecy and the testimony of eyewitnesses, as Second Peter 1 describes all that. And as we mentioned last week, we can all identify with this man born blind because his physical situation points to our spiritual one. Before being touched by the saving grace of God, we are blind. We're born blind spiritually. But now having been given eyes to see and hearts to believe, there's no denying that God has done a marvelous work through his son, Jesus Christ. And the fruit of our own conversion is always with us. Both the subjective knowledge of being adopted as a child of God and the objective evidence of being led by God's spirit are certain irrefutable facts of God's grace. Romans 8 describes it that way, starting in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We all have a testimony to share. Each of us have the privilege of bearing witness to the grace of God seen in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of us has a story to tell. And while the particulars of all of our individual stories might vary from one another, the core message that we proclaim remains the same. And it sounds just like this man. One thing I know, being once blind, now I see. And recognize this. Just because the water is muddy doesn't mean it's deep. That was once said in the, by an old preacher. Just because the water is muddy doesn't mean it's deep. When it comes to bearing witness to Christ, some believe that you have to be the most eloquent person in the world in order to engage in such an endeavor. You must utilize the most theological jargon you can come up with. But oftentimes it's quite the opposite. Now, it must be said that there is something wonderful about being able to be precise in theology. It would be very, very helpful. Something wonderful about being able to take the testimony of Scripture and boil down certain truths to particular words or terms, summarizing wondrous doctrines with single words, things like soteriology, ecclesiology, redemption, justification, propitiation, these sorts of words. They're rich and wonderful terms. It's sad that in our day there's been a retreat away from these terms and the study required to understand these terms. But having said that, yet simple, clear, and succinct statements are much more useful than long, wearisome discourses especially when considering the lost. And your use of terminology is only as good as your ability to explain those terms in plain English. You know, one of the best exercises, and I find this so wonderful with our children, is explaining the gospel to kids. If you don't have kids, ask some other parent. I can tell you what they'll tell you. If you can share the gospel with their children. If they say no, let me know. If they deny you the ability of sharing the gospel with their kids. But find children and share the gospel with them. It will force you to make sure that you not only are able to throw out theological jargon, but you understand the meaning of those terms, can explain them in simple language. This formerly blind man puts on a clinic in this regard. Not only does he simply explain the procedure by which Jesus heals him. By the way, they're saying, how did this happen? And he says, well, this is what happened. He doesn't actually explain what is the actual thing that caused this to occur, because he doesn't know. Nor did anyone else. But when he's asked his opinion then of who Jesus is, the man simply states, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. 
That title is typically fitted to anyone who specifically is set, of, set apart to do God's will and speak God's word. And at this point, this man is giving a very simple explanation. Recognize this. This man is still gaining knowledge regarding Jesus. We might all admit that that title doesn't go far enough, right? There are people who are not saved today that claim that Jesus is a prophet. It's not enough for saving relationship and, uh, with God. But as far as it goes so far, it is true. This man makes a true proclamation, and it rests upon completely reasonable grounds. Jesus performed a miracle which could only be explained as a work of God. And Jesus said that that's exactly what it was as well. It's the value of simple and concise statements that fuels our Q&A that we do with our children here at the church. We send that out in the prayer list as well every week. And I really want to encourage the church to consider putting, copying that off and putting it at your dinner table and working through it, whether you have children or not. The questions and answers that are provided there are greatly useful when given opportunities to witness. Boiling down the basics of the gospel, being ready to provide the gospel to others and to back it up with scripture. For example, the differences between Christianity and cult groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons becomes quite evident if you plainly declare the truths of the triune nature of God, the person and work of Christ, and the means by which men may be saved. You talk about those three things, you'll instantly see the differences between Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and genuine Christianity. Third thing to note, a faithful witness will, number three, Prepare for varieties of rejection. Prepare for varieties of rejection. Won't be surprised by unbelief. You see, rejection is inevitable apart from the grace of God. And again, we see in the account before us, it's not, the unbelief of the religious leaders is not due to a lack of evidence. The boldest evidence is literally staring them in the face right now, right? There he is, a man who is formerly blind, now sees, blind from birth. You see, God can provide sign after sign, but the sinful heart will yet resist, reject him and resist him. The crowds try to explain the evidence away by claiming that maybe this man's just a lookalike. And after their first examination of this man, the Pharisees decide that they will conduct an investigation into this man's identity. So they call the man's parents to the stand. The man had not only confirmed the reality that he was once born blind, but now he saw. But now when he was asked his opinion regarding who this man is, he says he's a prophet. And this is going the wrong way for these religious leaders. They don't like it one bit. They've got to start discrediting this man's testimony one way or the other. So what do they do? What's calling his parents? Let's find a way to throw out this guy's testimony. All the parents end up doing is confirming that this was their son and that he was born blind. That would be hard for parents to be mistaken about, wouldn't it? You see, all the Pharisees have done in their attempts here is just made this man's testimony all the more firm. That they brought more witnesses to the stand, and they've been able to proclaim what has happened. Yet the Pharisees continue to, to refuse to recognize this miracle as a genuine sign that Jesus was one sent from God, the very Messiah. They steadfastly resist the plain evidence and testimony that is given to them. They claim to know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. 
so they refuse to acknowledge this act as one that comes from God. They've already made up their minds. He's a sinner. So we will not accept any other explanation. Even when shown the error of their ways, they refuse to receive correction. They become angry to cast the man out rather than repent and believe in Christ. Here's the point. Don't be surprised by that, dear friends. Were it not for the grace of God, we too would similarly continue to reject Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Don't be surprised by it. And therefore, don't be deterred by it either. Don't be re- surprised by rejection. So don't be deterred by rejection. Why do you think that Jesus comes out with this statement right before he sends out the twelve? I mean, it sounds like some pep talk, huh? I'm going to send you out. You're going to be sheep among wolves. There's going to be people bringing you before courts. You're going to be scourged. You're going to be hated. Go out there, guys. I mean, why does he do this? Because he wants to help them recognize the reality of the situation that they're walking into. Don't be surprised by this. Therefore, don't be deterred by this. We note here with this man that no matter what circumstances are presented him, he maintains his position and his testimony. If anything, his testimony becomes increasingly bold towards the end, as we'll note in a minute. The man recognizes the maneuvering of the Pharisees, and he won't play along with them. No matter what the Pharisees threaten, no matter who they involve, no matter what insults they might hurl or actions they might take, the man resolutely testifies to what Jesus has done. And so it must be with us as well. We must not allow insults and scorn and laughter and persecution to keep us from bearing witness. Think about it this way. In this country as it exists at this moment, bearing witness to the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, at worst probably sees you endure some insults or some laughter, some public scorn. Now what baby stops proclaiming the truth when somebody who's foolish and in the dark starts laughing at them? But meanwhile, we allow them to exert so much pressure, and we curl up under that. But this man won't allow the insults, the scorn, the laughter, the persecution to keep him from bearing witness. It reminds me of the account of Peter and the apostles who were speaking in the name of Jesus. And so, as a result, they're flogged and ordered to no longer speak in his name. As they leave that presence in Acts 5, of these rebellious Jewish leaders, they, quote, were rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. We hear this word. This is, so Peter is one of those apostles that engaged in that. So we see this in his life and we see it in his teaching. Listen to 1 Peter 4, how he instructs us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Is there some strange thing were happening to you? But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Don't be surprised. No, it's coming. Rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer with your Lord. If they treated Jesus the way they did, if they counted, if they considered Jesus to be Beelzebul, can we not not be surprised that we who follow him will, will endure suffering and hardship from those who are still in rebellion against God? 
don't allow rejection to surprise you. And therefore, don't allow it to deter you either. Fourth, a God-glorifying witness will trust the Lord's companionship. God-glorifying witness will trust the Lord's companionship. Your family and friends may abandon you. Following Christ might mean the loss of all of your closest earthly friends at the point of your conversion. You may be left without earthly supports. When this man's parents are called in by the Pharisees, they're guarded in what they say. We're told that the parents were afraid of the Jews, for they are aware that an agreement had already been made where the Jews would expel from the synagogue anyone who might profess Jesus as the Christ. Now, just so you recognize this, being expelled from the synagogue had massive religious, social, and economic consequences. It would mean being put out of the community. Massive implications. And because of this fear, the once blind man's parents claim, yeah, he's our son, and yes, he was born blind, but how he sees, we don't have a clue. Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Instead of standing by their son as a united front, they pass the buck. Ask him. He's of age. He's of maturity. He'll speak concerning himself. John tells us that this was motivated out of fear. They didn't want to speak up because they were fearful of what consequences it would come, would come to them. So I remind you as well, don't be surprised if your closest companions leave you out to dry. The gospel will divide the closest of earthly relationships. And this is why our brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ is so strong. It's here where we find a friend indeed. Friends that are fitted for adversity. But even here, it is possible for earthly friendships to fail us. So our dependence must be upon Christ alone. The Lord may provide us with wonderful companions from time to time upon this earth, but none can be a substitute for the Lord himself. And what blessed news to hear in connection with the Great Commission to make disciples in our going, baptizing them and teaching them, that Jesus promises this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, this man could stand firm because he knew Jesus had worked decisively in his life. That was undeniable. And so it is for those who have been saved and redeemed by Christ. Hold fast to your Savior and to your Lord. While everyone else may desert you, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fifth, in the midst of bearing witness for God's glory, you need to, number five, beware of false argumentation. Beware of false argumentation. You have to be ready to correct falsehood with truth. Beware of unsound arguments. You see, an argument can be unsound from a number of different directions. We need to become skilled at recognizing fallacious forms of reasoning. People fall victim to them often. And I think we kind of see a clinic of this being put on for us with the Pharisees here. They attempt manipulation, first of all. You remember, they've already called this man in once. They then call in his parents. And so the idea is, I guess, this guy goes out of the room, and now they're calling him back in. Second calling of this man 
may have been purposely done out of an effort to imply that perhaps they had garnered some support for their own positions, some contrary information from this man's parents, and so they immediately press this man to recant on his views of Jesus. They make use of intimidation. They make an improper appeal to authority. They exhort the formerly blind man to give glory to God because they know this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. This is even an interesting phrase. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Either the Pharisees, there's one of two options here, what's really primarily in the mind of the Pharisees here. Either A, they're playing off of Joshua's exhortation to Achan. Remember back when Achan had coveted and stolen things that were supposed to be devoted to the ban and it caused great consequences on the people of Israel. They lost in battle the next day. Remember as they're trying to figure out who it is that had done this, they're casting lots. Joshua looks at Achan and says the following, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Perhaps they're playing off of this Old Testament text with the implications that they're exhorting this man to stop lying. Give glory to God. Stop lying about this. Square with us. Tell us the truth. Or the phrase is being used as part of the argument that the Pharisees are already operating from, and it would connect this way. Give glory to God. This man, We know this man's a sinner. In other words, cease giving credit to Jesus. We know he's a sinner. Instead, give the glory to God. It's so interesting how people will take this like pious attitude. You know, Stop doing this. Give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. What's so strange is that this man is holding his testimony precisely because he desires to give glory to God. He doesn't know anything about whether Jesus is a sinner or not at this point, but he cannot deny that Jesus gave him sight. But this whole line of reasoning was based on a valid yet unsound argument. The Pharisaical syllogism was based upon their beliefs on what it meant to keep the Sabbath. If we were going to line it up, it would read like this. This is how their argument goes. Syllogism is just three statements. You have two premises and then it leads to a conclusion. So three statements. The first one would be this. All people who are from God keep the Sabbath. All people who are from God keep the Sabbath. Number two, this man does not keep the Sabbath. We need the conclusion, therefore, this man is not from God. All people from God keep the Sabbath. This man does not keep the Sabbath, therefore, this man is not from God. The syllogistic argument is logically valid. What we mean by that is that it is structured such that if the premises are true, they lead necessarily to a true conclusion. But note that first statement, if the premises are true. And this is where their argument is undone. I want you to remember that reason is the friend of truth. You don't have to retreat away from logical arguments. Let's instead expose what is wrong in unsound arguments and refute them with sound ones. What was wrong in this pharisaical argument? The problem for the Pharisees is their definition of what it means to keep the Sabbath. And that definition influences the meaning of both premises. Because remember, it all runs this way. All those who are from God keep the Sabbath. This man does not keep the Sabbath. Well, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? That's the real issue here. That's the rub. 
By keeping the Sabbath, the Pharisees required the rabbinical Sabbath regulations, which Jesus had already exposed as inconsistent. He's already done this several times. The Sabbath did not exclude deeds of necessity and mercy from being done, nor did it prevent the one who is Lord of the Sabbath from using it to glorify God. That's Jesus' point. As a matter of fact, he points out the absurdity of their argument by saying, you at least would help an animal out of a ditch. You'll untie an animal to go give it some water. Much more important is it for me to do things like this where I've loosed the, bound, the, binds of, the, the binding of Satan on people's lives. If you'll be merciful to animals, how much more ought I be merciful to those who are created in the image of God? You see, the pharisaical regulations were not equal to what it meant to keep the Sabbath. So their argument does not speak against Jesus being from God. Because Jesus is not violating the Sabbath. He's violating their regulations regarding the Sabbath, but those regulations were not God's regulations. This argumentation didn't speak against Jesus being from God. As a result, this evidence of this miraculous healing cannot be just thrown out. That's what they're doing here. They will not even consider the case because they're saying it was the Sabbath. Jesus did it on the Sabbath. He can't be from God because he must have broke the Sabbath. Now listen to how the blind man, the blind man offers another argument back. His syllogism reads like this. Statement one. Only people who are from God can open the eyes of the blind in order that by doing this they might display the works of God. Only people who are from God open the eyes of the blind. Two, this man with that purpose in mind has opened the eyes of one born blind. Therefore, this man is from God. You see, the sign of Jesus' miracle here points this man to saying this man is from God. This too, just like the Pharisees' argument, is valid in its structure, but the difference is that the premises are also true. This man points out the uniqueness of the miracle that Jesus performed. Remember, he says, no one else has ever done this. And given that these things were done for the glory of God, with the right motivations, with the right purpose, Jesus said this was done so that the works of God might be manifested. And therefore, this man even connects it as being an answer to prayer. He says, who does God hear but those who do what he desires, what he wills? Interesting. Jesus even picks up on this very point in John 15. He says this in verse 24. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Jesus is saying, I did something among them that no one else has ever done. This is what this man's saying. No one's ever healed someone who is born blind. What's marvelous about this is that this man beats the Pharisees at their own game. He outreasons them. <laughs> he takes the religious leaders to whatever you want to say. I don't know what the phrase would be. He takes them to task. He outreasons them. Chrysostom remarks, this is a really great statement. How strong is truth and how weak is falsehood. Truth, though she take hold of only ordinary men, maketh them appear glorious. Falsehood, even with the strong, makes them appear weak. If you have truth on your side, you're in the position of strength. Sixth, when bearing God-glorifying witness, lastly, 
Be courageous in confronting mockery. Be courageous in confronting mockery. Call for decision. Call for action. And I want to contrast quickly. Near the beginning of this whole text, we see that there is a quiet group of leaders who are in need of courage. Earlier here, we were told that there was a schism or a division that arose between the Pharisees because a few less vocal or less influential ones were asking, how is a man, a sinner, able to do such things? They asked that question while they were in assembly with one another. But that's the last time we hear that statement from the Pharisees. So someone among the Pharisees has proposed this question, how is, if he is a sinner, how is he doing such things? The statement was made in the form of a question that nearly as developed as the statement which this man born blind makes, but it's right along the same lines of what this man born blind says. Some have wondered who might have uttered this. One potential possibility is Nicodemus. Why do I say that? Well, had Nicodemus been present, the language is quite familiar. John 3. When Nicodemus speaks to Jesus, he says this in John 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I wonder why it is that that question is posed while in the Pharisaical meeting, but meanwhile we don't hear another word of it until it comes off the lips of this man born blind who probably had no formal education and probably had very little training of any sort whatsoever. There were some Pharisees in that group that day that were in need of some courage. Meanwhile, this man makes a courageous confrontation of these vocal rebels. Not only does this man use reason well in searching after truth, but he also confronts the Pharisees on their obvious stubbornness of heart. This man did not inherit the timidity of his parents. He's like, where did this guy come from? He's cut from a different cloth, right? His parents are scared they can put out the synagogue. You ask him. He's of age. Meanwhile, this guy not only is taking them to task on their logic, but he makes use of irony to expose the pride of these religious leaders. And we can't help but rejoice, can you? As you're reading through this text, are you just like, yes, (laughs) yes, somebody's saying what needs to be said to this pharisaical duplicity. Their deceit. When he's asked again to explain what Jesus did to him, remember he's already been called now the second time. He was already asked this by the crowds. He was asked it by the Pharisees in formal disputation. He then asked the parents, and they bring him back and they say all this, and they're still saying after all of this, tell us again what what did he do? And the man says, "I told you already. You didn't listen. Why again do you wish to hear? You don't wish to become his disciples, do you? Oh, it's cutting." What a nice, strong bit of sarcasm. It reminds me of the Proverb 26.5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. This man answered the Pharisees in a manner which made evident their foolishness and their unbelief. And when the Pharisees revile him in turn by saying, you are his, his disciple. But we are Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses. We don't know where this man is from. Then the man replies, Why, an amazing thing is this! Oh, I'm sure it was dripping with it. Oh, what a marvelous occasion is this! That you do not know from where he is, and he opened my eyes? 
the man remarks at how incredible it is that the Pharisees admit to not knowing something. Finally, the Pharisees say they don't know something. But it's something that is so plainly obvious that even a formerly blind beggar can connect the dots. Their supposed ignorance, by the way, is because they chose to deny the facts of the case before them because they do not want to accept the implications. They do not want to accept that Jesus is from God, so they just refuse to admit it. That's why they'll say things like, we don't know where he's from. This is clearly duplicitous. For they, by the way, on a previous occasion, John 7, look this up, verse 27, John 7, verse 27, they were ready to reject Christ, reject Jesus, his authority, because why? Quote, they knew where he came from, end quote. So on a previous occasion, occasion, they're ready to do away with Jesus because they knew where he came from. In this case, it's a, their disapproval of the town of Nazareth. And they say there, so when he comes, we won't know where he's from. That's how we'll know that the Messiah comes. We don't where, won't know where he's from. And out here they say, we don't know where he's from. So which way is it, Pharisees? Which way will it be? This man's actions remind me also of the application of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. You have to handle these with a lot of discernment, a lot of wisdom, very carefully. But we're told to not give holy things to dogs and not to throw our pearls before swine. We're not to entrust holy things to people without godly character, nor valuable truths to people without godly values. And those who have decisively and defiantly rejected the gospel must be handled differently. For this reason, God's gifts are not to be laid open to abuse or his truth laid open to mockery. We should never engage in any activity that will denigrate the things of God, nor encourage others to treat the things of God flippantly. There are those who are bent on the destruction of God's message and despise the Lord as worthless, and these individuals should not have the blessings of God served up to them just to have those precious truths laughed at, scorned, and denigrated. John MacArthur summarizes well, When people not only reject the gospel, but insist on mocking and reviling it, we are not to waste God's holy word and the precious pearls of his truth in a futile and frustrating attempt to win them. We are to leave them to the Lord, trusting that somehow his spirit can penetrate their hearts or leave them to the just judgment of God. As I said, such words must be handled carefully and with wisdom. There's a reason for which Jesus said this. And I think this man's application of that principle, whether he had ever heard it from Jesus' mouth or not, is a brilliant application of it. These religious leaders have been confronted with the truth. The evidence was before them. They continued to deny it no matter what. And at that point, this man's like, I'm not playing along with this anymore. You've already asked me this question. You've already answered it. Why do you continue to ask me? And then he strikes a chord with them. And so what is the final resort of the Pharisees? Ad hominem attacks. You can't deal with the person's argument, attack the person. And we see that still today, too, don't we? We see it in politics. And sadly, perhaps I know far too often we can see this even in our personal relationships with one another. Pharisees here in their ad hominem end up exposing more than they're even aware, though, I think. They say to him, in utter sin you were born, and you teach us. You presume to teach us, you who were born in vile, utter sin? Now, how do they think that he was born in vile, utter sin? Back up. 
Remember what the discussion the disciples had right at the very beginning of this whole thing when Jesus starts to approach this man born blind? What did the disciples ask Jesus? Who sinned? This man or his parents? Remember? Why? Because there were some common notions that those who were born with birth defects and these sorts of disabilities got them as a result of someone's sin, either theirs or their parents. So they were born in abject sin. Now, when these Pharisees say this to this man, what are they admitting? They're admitting that he was born blind. They're admitting that they understand he was born blind. Why? Because their whole logic, that whole reasoning process, false as it was, was based upon their belief that someone born blind was born in abject sin. So now they're trying to discredit what he's saying on the basis of what he said all along. I was born blind. And now I see. Instead of responding to this man's impeccable logic, they ridicule him and laugh at him that he should teach them. Their arrogance and pride here is just overwhelming. Their final act is to cast this man out. Some people say that maybe this is just a reference to being cast out of that meeting. But many, many think that this is a much further reaching expulsion, an actual expulsion from the synagogue. And Arthur Pink comments, the Pharisees' blindness, their refusal to be influenced by the most convincing evidence, their enmity against this beggar's benefactor, and their unjust and cruel treatment of him vividly forecasted the treatment which the Lord himself was shortly to receive at their hands. Don't miss this. The reason why this man underwent the persecution he did that day was because of Jesus. It was because of his connection to Jesus that this man was persecuted the way he was. 1 Peter 3.15 instructs all Christians to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I want to make three quick points from this verse that I think will serve as a helpful closing summary of what we've talked about. First of all, being asked to give an account for the hope that is within us is predicated upon the fact that Christ is sanctified in our hearts. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. That you would then give an account or a reason for the hope that is in you. You see, the only reason for which someone will ask us about the hope that is in us is if indeed we are those who have hope. Right? They'll only ask the question if we are those who have hope. And where is hope found? Hope is found in Christ. So conversion begets hope. Those who are saved have been given an everlasting hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us, Romans 5.5. 5. Whenever God works to open blind eyes, be they physical or spiritual, it is impossible to hide it from one's neighbors. If your eyes have been opened, that will be evident to those around you. They'll notice the difference and opportunities will be provided for bearing witness to God's grace found in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're, always, we're called to always be ready to make a defense. Always be ready to make a defense. The word translated here, defense, by the NAS and ESV, is translated answer in the King James and NIV. It's the Greek word apologia, which looks kind of like our English word apology, but it's quite different in meaning from the typical way we use that word today. 
where we usually use it to mean like I'm sorry, um, to express sorrow or regret that I had done something. But we do get the meaning for the study of apologetics from the Greek base meaning, to provide reasons for one's beliefs, to provide reasons for one's actions. We're instructed to always be prepared to explain to others how we came to our position of of hope. We must be ready to explain on what basis we have hope. That's why our witness is, yes, one of action and one of activity and one of attitude, but it is one of verbally proclaiming the basis for the hope that we enjoy. And 2 Timothy 4.2 reminds us that we need to be ready in season and out of season. We need to be prepared to preach the word, to bear witness for Christ's sake when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. When times are favorable and when times are not. Each of us is responsible to bear witness. And third, we're told to make this defense, to give this account, to testify with gentleness and reverence. I believe it's best to understand these two descriptions as instruction regarding our attitude towards others and our attitude towards God, respectively. We're to be gentle in our proclamation to our fellow men. We must remember that we're not, we're not for the grace of God. We, too, would still be dead in our sins and awaiting a terrifying day of judgment. And gentleness, like meekness, does not mean weakness, but power under perfect Perfect control, as Matt Dustin, our headmaster, would say. This is a position of strength. It's one in which we use truth wisely and we proclaim it in love. We're also called to be continually reverent in our evangelism, for we're speaking in the sight and hearing of God. We're dealing with sober realities that aren't to be trifled with. So our proclamation must simultaneously sound a joyful chord as well as a sober chord, a serious chord in the hearts of others. This must be done first and foremost out of a desire that God's excellencies would be announced. What a privilege that we've been granted to proclaim His excellencies, the one who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that privilege is also a wonderful and, and awesome responsibility. May we, like this man, be God-glorifying witnesses to God's glory and to the sufficiency of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that we have had this morning to con- consider the interactions between this man who was born blind but given sight and the crowds and the religious leaders. While he was abandoned and left to himself, we know that he wasn't utterly alone as you were with him. Lord, help us to bear consistent testimony to the greatness of you and the glories of the gospel that a man, while a sinner, can be justified, can be declared righteous by the work of Jesus Christ. May these words be always ready on our lips, in season and out of season. May we communicate these truths with joy and seriousness. May we be earnest about making this proclamation. 
may it be done out of great joy and love for you and for our fellow man. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.